0: But we're back in Joshua, and we're in Joshua chapter 7 this week, and before we go jump into Joshua 7, we have to read a verse in Joshua 6, because Joshua 7 doesn't make sense apart from this verse in Joshua 6. There was a foreshadowing that took place, an ominous note, if you remember, three weeks ago, Joshua 6 was this miraculous fall of Jericho, and that was a huge moment, um, I'm just making sure that this is recording and that we're good. Yep, we're good. That was a huge moment for Israel. They achieved a major victory without having to do anything. Uh, the walls came down and, and it was done miraculously. Um, and it was their first victory in the land. So morale is high, everything's great. But there was this one little note in Joshua 6. And if you don't remember it, it's in chapter, eight, chapter 6, verse 18. Verse 17, actually. God told Israel when they were going to go in and after He was going to defeat Jericho, He says in verse 17, the city and all that is in it are to be harem, devoted to the Lord or destined for destruction or different translations translate it different way. I'm just going to use the word harem because we don't have an English equivalent for this practice. But it basically means devoted all to God by destroying it or putting it in the sanctuary. And it was done in the ancient world. It was done not just by Israel. It was common practice. And that's what the term harem means. It means devoted, consecrated, or under a ban of human usage. Not for use by people. Only for God. So, no, Corbin is a different word that means gift. No, this is harem. Um, think of like harem, like a bunch of women, you know, like a wise harem, but with two E's. Uh, H-E-R-E-M instead of H-A-R-E-M. So, harem. And then put the on the front and that's what you get. Harem. And that just means devote to destruction. Completely offer to the Lord. Like basically make it a burnt offering. And so God says in verse 17 of chapter 6, the city and all that is in it are harem to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Here's the key. But keep away from the harem so that you will not bring about your own harem by taking any of it. Otherwise, you will make the camp of the, Isra- the whole camp of Israel harem and bring trouble, and that word is akor or achar, trouble, onto it. So that's what God warned Israel before going into battle, this miraculous battle. All of Israel, do not take from the harem. And the battle was victorious. Jericho fell. Rahab was spared. She was brought into the people of Israel. A Canaanite of Canaanites. A woman, a prostitute, a pagan. And yet because of her faith in God and her obedience, she was spared. Now we're going to see the flip side of that. We're going to see what happens when somebody did not obey what God said explicitly. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully against the harem. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. That's a very illustrious line. The tribe of Judah. Later kings will come from it. Ultimately Jesus. So an Israelite of Israelites, as if to contrast with Rahab, who was a Canaanite of Canaanites. Um, Achan, son of Judah, took some of the harem. Did exactly what God said not to do. Took some of it. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now it's gonna spell this out. That was this whole situation in a nutshell. Now through recapitulation, it's gonna unpack the situation. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Aven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Now Ai is, in Hebrew, it's always the Ai, Ai. And it means the ruin. So it's, it's just a word that means the ruin. And it's the name that came to be associated with it after these events. Maybe not at the time. It might have been the, called that at the time, but later at least it became known as the ruin. We'll see why in the story. But Joshua sent men and says, go spy it out. So, verse 3, when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people have to go up against I. Send two or three eleph of men. And and if you're new here, I always say eleph instead of thousand because the Hebrew word that's translated thousand is eleph, and sometimes it means thousand. Sometimes it means regiment. Sometimes it means just an indeterminate group of people. And since we don't know, I just say eleph and leave it untranslated. Um, So that way you don't have to figure out how how are all these numbers working together. Um, Send two or three regiments, two or three eleph up against the city. You don't need to send everybody. These are what the spies are telling him. To send two or three to take it. And do not weary all the people. For only a few are there. There's only a few people at this place. Ai, this small place. So about three elephant men went up. But they fled before the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So the battle, they just had this amazing win at Jericho. This amazing entry into the land, triumphant. And so they're on a roll. So Joshua says, all right, let's spy out the next site, the next strategic garrison. Remember, these cities are garrisons. They're military centers. They're outposts. They're not like cities like we think of. And Joshua says, "Go, let's, let's see the next one. So it's I, so go spy it out. So the spies come back and they're like... It's a little, we don't even need everybody. Just send a few. Just send a few regiments up there. And there's no mention of God in this. There's no asking of the Lord. There's no direction of God like there was with Jericho. So already, that may alert you that something may not be quite right. Joshua, the rest of Israel are thinking, we're untouchable. We've just experienced this revival victory, right, in Jericho. We cannot be beat. So we're just going to send a few up there. Well, they do and those few get routed. And it says they fled before the men of Ai. They fed. They ran away. And then the phrase, because of hearing it, the people of Israel, their hearts melted and became like water. That's exactly the phrase that Rahab had said. If you remember back in the chapter on Rahab, what she told the spies that the Canaanites had experienced when they heard about Israel. Said all the Canaanites are scared to death. Their hearts have melted like water. And so now it's happening to Israel. Because of this breaking of the harem, Israel is experiencing what it's like to be Canaanites. That's what's going on in this. What should have happened to the Canaanites at the hands of Israel is now happening to Israel at the hands of the Canaanites. That's the reversal in this chapter that the author is taking pains for you to see. And so, the hearts of the people melted became like water. And again, you can read that in chapter 2, verse 9. That's exactly what the Canaanites experienced. So, verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and remained there till evening. The elders of Israel, uh, they, they did the same. They, they sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites and destroy us? Amorites is the generic term for all the peoples of the land, including the citizens of Ai. Uh, it says... If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Please, Lord, what can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us, and they will, and the NIV says, wipe out our name, but the Hebrew literally says, cut off. and It uses that word, karath, which is to be cut off from the people of God. We've seen it used throughout Torah. Um, The people will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? For your own reputation, so to speak. So Joshua now, he's crying out and he's saying, you know, everything has been overturned. He literally uses, and when it says, now, NIV says, now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the word that's translated has been routed, it says, the neck, their neck has been turned. Uh, in other words, like turning and running away. It's, a, it's an idiom. But interestingly, and because I just taught on Jonah for the past two weeks, it's the word that Jonah uses in his sermon against Nineveh that says 40 day, more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And it can mean destroyed, it can mean turned away, it, can mean, it has different meanings. But it's this interesting word because what's happened in Israel is that. Israel's entire identity as God's conquering army coming in to judge the Canaanites has been overturned in this single instance because of the disobedience of the breaking of the covenant command to not take from the harem. To not take what's devoted to the Lord. And so Joshua, just like Moses, his predecessor, basically calls out God and, and puts his, name, his reputation on the line. Says, God, what are the nations going to think? What are they going to think when they hear about this? Your name in all the earth. Because they've already heard about all the battles on the Transjordan and the battles against Jericho. And so now they're going to hear that we were beaten by little I, little ruin. What is that going to do for your name, God? So he's interceding, but he's also lamenting. He's crying out, but he's maintaining respect because he's using the words please and sovereign Lord. And So he's not whining, but he is pouring out his heart and he's genuine confusion. Because he does not know the source of why they weren't able to be victorious. And so verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. (laughs) In Hebrew, literally, get up. Stand up in the text, but get up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have crossed my covenant. NIV says violated, but it's the word to cross. Like they crossed the Jordan. They have crossed my covenant. Which I commanded them to keep. And then God lays on the charges against Israel. And He uses the word even, which I'm going to insert because the NIV leaves it out for stylistic reasons. But I'm going to insert it so you can hear God building the crescendo of charges against Israel. Um, he says, they, they crossed My covenant which I commanded them. They even took some of the harem. They even stole. They even lied. They even put them with their own possessions. That's why Israel cannot stand against their enemies They turn their neck and run because they have become harem. I will not be with you anymore unless you exterminate the harem from your midst. That's what God's saying. They've taken from the harem, they've become harem. And so until that harem is removed, I am not Israel's protector, and I am not in Israel's midst. This is part of the covenant. The covenant requires obedience. There's specific rules that I gave. So you cannot keep parts of the covenant, flagrantly violate other parts of the covenant, and think it'll be okay. And God's instilling this in Israel and He's, and he's speaking to them collectively as a people. And this is going to raise some issues for us because we're going to find out that it was one guy. But in a collectivist society, especially in a pastoral, shepherding, communal, uh, ancient herdsman society, One person's actions is really hard to keep hidden, especially when it involves what we see in the next section, that that more than just Achan would have known about this. That This would have been at least a little bit of his family's involvement as well to be able to hide the stuff that he finds. So God says to Joshua, Arise, again, get up, consecrate the people, tell them, Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The harem that is among you, O Israel, you cannot rise against your enemies until you remove the harem from your midst. Literally is what the Hebrew says. There's harem in your midst, so until it's removed from your midst, you will not be able to stand against your enemies because I will not fight for you. He's, He's just ingraining to them. These battles aren't yours. Fight. They aren't yours to win. You're not your own army. You're my army, and my army has my rules of engagement, and my rules of engagement are very clear. So he says, verse 14, in the morning uh, you will step up, and IV says present yourselves, but literally you will step up, tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward, clan by clan, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward, family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward. NIV says man by man, but literally in Hebrew it says warrior by warrior. Because it's the people that were in the battle. He who is caught with the harem shall become harem by fire along with all that belongs to him. He's crossed the covenant of the Lord and has done unfaithful thing in Israel. Or a disgraceful thing in Israel. He's been unfaithful. So God is going to identify going to call out and this is going to be a very public thing. So early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was taken. Now how is this? This is done through the casting of lots. This would have been done through the high priest and the Urim and the Thummim, which is in the high priest's breastplate. And some scholars, we don't know exactly how casting lots worked, but typically there was usually like, it's the most likely the Urim and the Thummim were two stones. One was light, one was dark. And you would ask yes, no questions. And whichever stone came out or reached into the bag and pulled out, that would be the answer. And it was typically thought, you know, this is how the casting of lots is done. Uh, there are other ways to, you know, like in Jonah's case, well, we're casting of lots, everybody puts their own lot into a bag, shake it, and the one that pops out, that's the guilty person. Something like that. There were different ways of doing this. The text doesn't mention any of these ways because it's emphasizing that God's the one that's making this selection. So whether he's doing it through casting of lots, whether he's doing it through divine identification, whether he's doing it through speaking to Joshua and telling him, the text doesn't really say. What it makes clear is that God, not Joshua, not anybody in Israel, is the one doing this judgment, this this judge, jury, and as we'll see, executioner. So early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by the tribes, and Judah was taken. So Judah was the tribe that was chosen. The clans of Judah then came forward, and he took the Zerahites, so from the clan of Zerah. And he had the clan of Zerahites come forward family by family, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward, warrior by warrior, and IV says man by man, and Achan. So of the the clan of Zimri, of the family of Zimri, of the clan of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, it was Achan, or Achan, as you'd say in English. Son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of of the tribe of Judah was taken. So the, finally, the guilty party is identified. And Joshua says to Achan, please, Hebrew has please here. I doesn't add it, but he does say it. Please, my son, give glory to God. Give, excuse me, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. And give Him the praise. And that's an idiom, most likely, that means confess. It means, hey, don't lie before God. Give Him the praise. Give Him the thanksgiving. Tell the truth. This might be how you would render it. Tell me, please, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Acham replied, it's true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw among the plunder a beautiful stately robe from Shinar, which is like Babylon area, 200 shekels of silver, it was about five pounds worth of silver, And a wedge, or literally in Hebrew, a tongue, like a tongue of gold, weighing 50 shekels, so about a pound and a quarter. I coveted them and took them, using the words of the Ten Commandments. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in the tent with his silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, they brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites. And they, IV says spread them out, but the literal verb is poured them out before the Lord. And it's fitting because that's what was to be devoted to the Lord. Offered to the Lord. So they're being offered back to the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had. In other words, everything that was part of this Cherem situation took them to the valley of Echor. The valley of Echor. Echor means trouble. It's exactly what God said back in chapter 6 will happen if they take from the Cherem, there will be trouble. So they take them to the valley of trouble. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble, Echor, on us? The Lord now will bring trouble, Echor, on you today. Then all Israel stoned Him. They burned them and they stoned them with stones. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from His fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Trouble, Achor, ever since. Now the story's not done here. We'll have to wrap it up. This is, this is all one narrative. Because they're not done with Ai. There's still the issue of the ruin that beat them the first time. God's not done. He's not abandoned Israel. But what's happened in this section, so Joshua is a troubling book for a lot of people, and it's because of things like this, right? The, the destruction of Jericho is troubling for some people because God seemed to destroy all of these people, but yet within that we see the glimmer that Rahab and her family were saved. All who turned to God were saved. So the principle that we've seen was that God spares the innocent but punishes the guilty. So then when we come to the Achan story, again, we're troubled because it says not only was Achan killed, but everything that belonged to him. All of his cattle, all of his sheep, all of his tent, his sons, his daughters. What did they do? So there's a couple of different ways that scholars and biblical teachers have handled this dilemma. Um, One of the ways is they said, well, God does what God wants. And if you don't like it, too bad. He's God, you're not. He gave them their life. He can take their life. And there's something to be said for that. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable judging God. And we don't realize that God is the author of life. This doesn't say anything about their eternal destination. doesn't say any judgment about whether the son and the daughter, however many there were, sinned or not. But the effects of the sin of the father was visited on the family. And... There's something to be said for just saying, look, we've just grown a little too comfortable in our modern individualistic society. Whereas in the ancient world, it'd make perfect sense. You know, you go to Japan, you go to China, you go to India, you go to places throughout in the, not in the Western hemisphere, and it's perfectly normal. If the father or the head of the family does something disgraceful, it disgraces the entire family and the entire family pays for it. And they expect to pay for it. They don't consider it unfair or unjust. Which is why there's such a high emphasis on piety and fidelity and honor and all of these things. So, that's part of our culture that's just very different from the ancient Near East. Something to be said for that. Other way people handle this is they say the phrase sons, daughters, cattle, donkeys, tents, all that belongs to him is just a stock phrase, it's a hyperbolic way of saying all of his stuff, everything that belonged to him. So whether it was literal sons and daughters, or whether it was just his house, his tent, his belonging, we don't know. We just leave some leeway. We know that Achan is the one who is mentioned as having rocks raised over him. He's the one whose sin this is known as. He's the one whose name is a wordplay on trouble. Achan and Achor. And later when this incident is mentioned, it's always the sin of Achan, not the sin of Achan and his family. The other way that people have looked at this is they've said, no, you don't don't take this amount of treasure and hide it on your own in a culture like this. It would not have been unknown. His family at least would have been in on helping him hide it. His family at least would have known it was there. You can't dig up a tent and bury something under it without the people living in that tent knowing that it happens. And it's not like they go off to school during the day and you do this. So that's another way people have said this. is No, his sons and daughters who were, we don't know their ages. It's not like little toddlers running around. I mean, this is a a household, so it could have been his adult children. We don't know. We just know that it was found in his tent buried underneath, and that's not something that somebody could do very easily in total secret. So as the tribes were being called out, there's a chance to repent. There's a chance to confess. As the clans are being called out, there's a chance to confess. It's getting, it's getting closer. It's getting closer. At every point, all through this process, Achan or his somebody in his family has a chance to come forward and say, hey, no need to even do all this. I did it. It's me, right? None of that happens. And so we see that, that we know, think back to Genesis. This is what we have to rest with at the end of the day. When Abraham was talking to God about the fate of Lot, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was concerned that innocent people would die for the sins of the wicked. And he asked God this question. He said, will the judge of all the earth not do what's right? Implying that yes, God is the judge of all the earth and He will do what's right. So whoever was punished, whoever was killed, whether it was Achan, whether it was Achan and his family, um, whatever, we stand in the place of Abraham and have to say, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? God's the one who knows guilt. God's the one who determines guilt. So we have to trust. And I think that passages like this in the Bible are there for a reason. I think they're there to make us a little uncomfortable. I think they're there to keep us from from the buddy Jesus mentality that we so easily slip into, where, you know, God's just our big cosmic daddy in the sky. Yeah, there's familiarity, there's intimacy, there is Abba Father. You know, yes, but at the same time, there's also O sovereign Lord. And we have to hold both of those things in tension. How can he be Abba, Father, Daddy, and O Sovereign Lord at the same time? And Scripture presents us with that dilemma. And we just have to hold it in tension. Yeah, he is. And so Israel is experiencing what it's like to be the vassal of the suzerain. Those of you that were with us for the past five years, you know what those terms mean. If you weren't with us, check the replay on the podcast or the videos. But Israel is the vassal and the vassal obeys the suzerain. And when the vassal does not obey the suzerain, the terms of the contract, the covenant curses happen. If they didn't, then it's meaningless. So right here at the beginning, at key points, this is what you see in the Bible. We're going to wrap it up. We've got three minutes here. At key points in covenant history, God is super severe. At key points. Not all the time. Sometimes he's way lenient, way more lenient than he should be, and then sometimes he's way more strict than he should be from our perspective. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, when we look at the big picture, what's going on? Now, there's a New Testament analog for this. At the beginning of the church, right when the church was being formed, the Holy Spirit's moving. The the new Joshua, Jesus, the new Joshua has brought the new Israel into the Promised Land through the waters of baptism. The Spirit is being poured out. They are taking the land spiritually back from the Canaanites, the forces of evil, which is Satan himself and all of the demonic oppression and the powers and the principalities. That's what's going on in the New Testament church. So the book of Acts is like the book of Joshua in that regard. The, The Gospel is going forward. God's people are marching forward. At the beginning of that, right at the beginning, there's a point where all the people are selling their stuff in order to be able to feed the poor among them. Everybody's looking out for each other, basically. There's no reason for any of us to starve. And so they do this voluntarily. It's never commanded of all time for all people. It's a decision that they make, and it's a strategic decision. Well, one of the couples, they fudge the numbers a little bit. They sell their field. And they keep some of it, but then they bring some of it and say, oh, we sold it for this much and we're giving this to the people. They, they, they do this thing that's seemingly magnanimous. They didn't have to sell any of it. It was their field. They could have kept it. They didn't have to. But they did. But they misrepresented how much of what they sold they were given to God's people. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. And so Peter calls them in just like Joshua calls Achan. And he's like, what have you done? And they confess. And it says the Holy Spirit killed him. Right there. Holy Spirit, boom, strikes him dead. Super severe. They gave to the church. All he did was hold back a little bit. All he did was say, well, you know, we sold the field for a million dollars. We give 500,000 and we just tell the church, hey, we sold a 500,000 dollar field. Have all the money. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Now in the scheme of things, when we compare that to genocide, child prostitution, murder, rape, that's not a really big sin. But at that point, in redemptive covenant history, God had to show His people collectively, I'm not playing around. This is a big deal that's happening and you are on the ground floor of it. And to whom much is given, much will be required. And so God was sterner with Ananias and Sapphira at that point. Well, that's what's going on here. Israel's entering the land and God has repeatedly told them, this is how you're to be. And they're on the cusp of being this new thing in the history of the world that's going to be the salvation of all the world in the long run. And this one little thing that almost derails it, God brings the hammer down hard. And He does it in the sight of all the people just like He'll do later with Ananias and Sapphira. So the point is that there are sometimes when God does these harsh judgments, it is specifically so that everybody will see it and will see, hey, God's not playing around right now. But we have to keep that in mind. Specific times. Is God always like this? No. No. We'd all be in trouble for sure. We'd all be heaped under stones. But no, God's not always like this. But is there certain times when things are so important and crucial that those who have been given much receive a stricter punishment if they go against it? Absolutely. And that's what we see with, this, with, with Echan. The Israelite of Israelites from the tribe of Judah cut off from the people of God. Whereas just before in the previous chapter, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who should have been cut off from God's people along with all of the people of Jericho, she and her entire household are saved. So Rahab and her household being saved, Achan and his household being cut off, literar- literarily are put in juxtaposition for a reason, to show us that this is not a God who has ethnic favorites. He's a God who has covenant stipulations. And at this point in Israel's history, that is paramount to keep in mind. So, they're going to get around to against I, and we're going to see that next week, but we're out of time. So we've got some leftovers. Grab some if you want to. Um, Pray for me that I get some sleep tonight, not this afternoon, and get back on schedule health-wise. I would very much appreciate that. And again, um, if you want to see some of the pictures from India, I'll stick around for a few minutes. You can look at them on my iPad over there. Otherwise, have a great week. Thanks, guys.